Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series called I Am. For these next few weeks, Pastor Jordan will be looking to scripture to answer the question so many of us face, who is Jesus? For generations, people have been debating this question. Was he a good moral teacher? Was he a revolutionary? Was he a figment of history's imagination? Was he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? John's Gospel records the identity of Jesus by examining his very words. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Would you join me in John chapter 11? I'm really focusing on verse 25. And this middle section of I am the resurrection and the life on this series of the I am statements of Jesus and John. But I want us to read the context here and read through John 11. Uh, We're going to read a a decent amount of the chapter. And so I hope you can follow along with me. Put yourself in this position here. As Mary and Martha are going through the loss of Lazarus. And then many of you know the story, but many of you don't. Maybe you're coming in. You haven't grown up in church. You don't know this story and the story of Lazarus. It is one of the most extraordinary stories in all of the Gospels. Every time I come to it, just the detail that's given to it, the conversations that happen, the people that are ma- uh, named and listed, and this is the extraordinary resurrection that happens at the end, is one of these stories that really is like these anchor stories that of, of the whole Gospel narrative. It's, it's one of these central, pivotal, watershed moments. And so John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, uh, of, the Beth- of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You can read some about that in chapter 12. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness This is one of the central verses we'll be focusing on at the beginning. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Um, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the, the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then in classic fashion, the disciples don't fully understand, right? They're just like you and me. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, and they thought that he meant he was taking a nap, okay, or rest in his sleep. Verse 14, and Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, he says a very curious phrase, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So there was kind of a funeral procession in a sense. There's this, uh, there's this mourning period that's going on. And verse 20, so when Martha heard that the Jew- Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had not been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that you, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and touched her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, the rabbi, is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were there uh, were with her in the house, consoling her, comforting her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, as would have been customary after a certain period of time. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and Jesus, who had come with her, was also, with her, all, all the others uh, were also weeping, he was deeply moved, and his spirit, and he was in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. You can just feel this emotion that he feels, right? Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see And in verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would also see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his, fa- his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the Pharisees gather together, and it's from that point on that they commit to put plans together to put him to death. I'm going to begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump right into this passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of this passage. 
Thank you for your resurrection power. The power that is displayed here in the scripture, but that we also, we also see represented in the people here in this room. The life and the resurrection that you in, imbibe within us, that you put within us, Lord, this life, your Holy Spirit that is with us, present among us, living inside of us, sanctifying us, empowering us, equipping us. God, we are thankful for what you have done. And God, as we have sung already, praise your name. We praise your holy name. And we thank you, God, for your blood. We thank you, Lord, for your, your, the cross and all that it means. And thank you, Lord, today for this passage of Scripture that instructs us that you are the life. We praise you, God, for it. Would you speak through me today, encourage these folks, Lord, draw and call and work within in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, this is our series of the I Am series, the seven I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And really, in a sense, this one, the I Am, the resurrection and the life, is one of my favorites, and yet I will honestly say one of the more challenging and personally emotional ones of them all. It's been one of these passages that I've been, had the pleasure of studying this week, but also one of them that really finds you at your tenderest and most emotional state, and it speaks into that, and yet I think it also plants this life and confidence and a hope for eternal life that is maybe unlike the other I am statements, that this one stands out in stark contrast, for it speaks a great deal about life. And I don't know about you, but as an opening illustration, I was thinking about this idea of the board game of life. I don't know if you, how many of you have played the board game of life. You guys know what I'm saying? There's that little multicolored spinner, right? You spin it, and then there's little cars. You put the people in it, right? And they go around on the different things, going through all the different ups and downs of life. Uh, kind of like Monopoly in some sorts. There's money that you get for doing things, and there's kind of property you can buy. There's different aspects of problems that come about. You might get a job or lose a job or some of these kinds of things. And so as I was looking at it, I was like, this will make a good opening illustration. I was online reading about life, and then I went down this wormhole of the original creator of life, the guy who designed the game. And he actually designed it much earlier than the version you're probably all familiar with. And they've changed the game uh, since 1860, I think it was, when the original creator made it. And so then I was going to go into this whole idea of how I can explain the game of life. And then I found a four-minute YouTube clip that I'm just going to show to you, because I think it presents a little bit better than I can, uh, describing this opening illustration that I think will help illustrate this idea of life. So I don't do this very often, but I'm going to show this clip for you guys, and I think I'll come right back up right after it, and I think it'll begin to make sense, all right? So let's cue that up. Ah, the game of life. It's about as offensive as a bowl of jello. But the original one from a hundred years earlier, it had squares like this. The first game of life wasn't just a game, it was a form of moral instruction. And it says something about how a society thinks life should be lived then and now. In a way, the game of life started when this chin disappeared. Milton Bradley was a young lithographer, basically a printer, in Massachusetts when he made a thousand prints of this man running for president in 1860. When Abraham Lincoln grew a beard, those prints were worthless, so Bradley had to pivot. He took his printing skills and let them loose on a young medium, 
board games. The checkered game of life was his first game, and it became a hit. Players started at infancy. They spun a teetotem, this thing, to determine options for their move. You had control to choose your move once you spun. The goal was to hit 100 points through 5-point milestones like college and congress, or big ones like 50 points for old age. The game's patent shows that Milton Bradley's life was more than just a social game. It was about great moral principles. Elizabeth Peabody founded the first English kindergarten in the United States in 1860. Milton Bradley published this portrait of her well after his Lincoln failure. He also volunteered to teach his own daughter's kindergarten class in Springfield, Massachusetts after the success of life. And he used his business, Milton Bradley and Company, to publish games and educational tools, including more than 40 books about the new kindergarten curriculum. They made a wide variety of learning tools, from educational puzzles to influential color wheels. Education became Bradley's passion, and the original Game of Life predicted that. It was a way to teach the checkered journey of life to children and adults. That weird spinner, the teetotum, that was originally to avoid cards and dice because they were associated with gambling. The location of each spot also taught a lesson. Old age was surrounded by many difficulties. Poverty lies near the cradle, but passing through it didn't hurt you in the beginning of the game. Setbacks didn't earn you points, but most didn't kick you out of the game either. Honesty led to happiness, industry to wealth, and perseverance led to success. I made 50000 in the stock market today. That's live! In 1960, long after Milton Bradley died, the company, which by then was mostly making games, dug life from the archives. Choosing it over a long list of other games the company had once published. They adapted it to 1960s America with a candy-colored spinner and stacks of cash and cars that could load up a full family of baby boomers to places like Millionaire Acres. I went to the poor farm. I'm on Millionaire Acres. It centered around paydays, where the value of winning a Nobel was the cash prize that came with it. The winner was the person with the most money. Today's versions are almost identical, with tweaks for different jobs and hot brand integrations. That's life! There was no more disgrace, but there also wasn't bravery, or honor, or truth. Both versions are the game of life. Which one should we play? All right, so does that help explain a little bit of the opening illustration? This is the game of life. Which game should we play, right? And obviously at church, we know this life is not a game. This isn't an idea, but I think I'm trying to present to you this concept this morning that ultimately we have a variety of different ways to describe what life is all about. Life is something that you could say as a game, we're all in. We're all on the same playing field. We join this game of life and we are here and yet what game are we playing? And when, when we talk about this idea of Jesus, we've been asking this question throughout this series, who is Jesus? 
And at that core is really the core question of the Christian faith. Who really is Jesus and who does he say he is? But fundamentally, underneath that question is, frankly, what is life all about? Essentially, as we look at Jesus' life, we also question our own lives and the inevitability of our life that has an inevitable end. That as we come to the person of Jesus, he answers for us the biggest questions we all face, the question of life and death. That in those games, you can play in variety and collect all kinds of things. You can have a good life or a bad life, but at the, some point, at some level, we all reach the end of old age and we reach the end of our life. So the question would be, what then? And Jesus is one of them that steps, one of this person that steps into that question and answers the what then question. You could even think about this as I was struck this week, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus that we've been looking at. Every single question revolves around the topic of life. L-I-F-E. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the door, he says, Ent- and this is enter through this door, and you will go in and out and find pasture, for in the next verse, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Last week, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the resurrection this week and life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I am the true vine. One maybe not explicitly saying it, but the idea is when you are connected to the true vine, you have life. If you are separated from the true vine, a branch that is broken off, it is burned and thrown into the fire, it withers and dies. But the idea of connected to the true vine, bound and abiding and remaining in him, you will have life. This core question is what we're talking about today. And the outline for you this today is simply through, if you have notes in front of you or you might have this outline, this life outline, L-I-F-E. We're talking about losing life. This is the idea that we look at right at the beginning. And then I am the life of what Jesus says. And then he steps into death and he feels the death. And then he makes a way of escaping that death through his resurrection power. There's this losing life, I am the life, feel death, escaping the death. So this first point, which we'll probably spend the majority of our time on, is this idea of losing life. This is where we we have to sense and feel what's going on in the story, that ultimately, right in the very beginning, we're presented in chapter 11 with this concept of death, that someone is ill, someone is sick, and someone is dying. There is an urgency here in the storyline, and yet Jesus responds in a very different way than you and I often would respond to it. Death reminds us ultimately here in the story, as it revolts even from within us, that death is wrong. There is something deathly wrong with us in the sense that death does not seem right. Death does not seem to us as something that should be. There's something sad about it. There's something wrong with it. I think that's because that's the way we're all made. We weren't made for death. We were made for life. Uh, This week, my... My girls had been going up onto our deck and looking down underneath the deck because there was a, a brand new baby's bird uh, robin's nest. 
And they got to look through the cracks of the deck and watch as these three little robin eggs uh, were hatching. And so each day my girls would run up in the morning and go to the deck and check on the baby birds and see what was happening. And it was really kind of neat as you just watch each one hatch out. And then they were calling dad. They even like called me at work one day. One's hatching, you know, it was so exciting. And then um, I came home from work and um, the girls, actually my, my son Judd came over babbling about Meow Meow, uh, which is our cat. And uh, Meow Meow had um, killed uh, a bird. And uh, there were feathers all over our backyard. And they weren't sure, but they thought maybe uh, Meow Meow had gotten the mother bird. And as it goes, it is true, the mother bird was gone because we kept checking on the nest and uh, we found that the bird no longer, the mom no longer returned to the nest. And so a day or two later, we, we went kind of, the girls were digging up worms and they were giving to me and I had tweezers and I was trying to feed these baby birds and it was just one of those situations where in my head I'm trying to keep positivity going and yet I recognize as I'm trying to feed them, there's not much activity up in the nest and not much is happening. And then the next morning, uh, I come home and... Um, and, and Juddy, my, my son, he, he can't say much, but he, he, he said, meow, meow, babble, and then he says, died. And, and that literally, one of the few words my son can say, maybe, I'm not sure why, but that's one of the words. Uh, maybe because he's watched the cat kill lots of different things. But uh, the, the birds had died. And then my, my daughters and my, my um, wife, they actually went to the edge of the woods and they, did, uh, they buried each bird individually. They put flowers and little gravestone markers for these birds. It was just the sweetest little thing. And, and, and to some of us who are maybe a little more callous, you're like, good night. There's like a gazillion birds out there. Like who, you know, who cares really? But, but to them, it wasn't just this little bird. It wasn't just this other bird out there, right? But it was like almost as God is aware of the sparrows. He knows each one, right, and cares for them. This little tiny bird who just was born is now buried on the edge of our yard. And you, you know many stories like that where maybe you've encountered situations like that. And then bring that to even today where we've encountered not just the death of a baby bird or a pet, but someone we deeply love and what that feels like. And that's, in a sense, where we're stepping into today. It's a very sensitive place. And I think, ultimately, losing life is so difficult because of the love that we have in life. Loving life and loving those we have to share life with makes losing it all the more difficult. Love is prevalent in the story, actually. Love is prevalent in verse 3 and verse 5 and other places. It says, the one you love is ill. Your friend, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, you know them. You love these people. They're sick. They need, he needs your help. There's this love. There's this love that's, that's central. And frankly, love and life go hand in hand, and it's part of being and really what makes us human. In a sense, in every culture, in every society, on, every, on the face of the planet, in every time period, the connection between these two things has been the same. For the value of life has always been present. And yet we would, as culture goes, we would say a, a mass murderer or a serial killer or a psychopath or a genocidal dictator, uh, people, someone starving millions of their people, these are the ones labeled in history as the evil ones, for they treat life as, as nothing. Life is to be cast aside. Life is worthless and invaluable. A mass murderer who almost systematically kills people off and takes life and snuffs it like it's nothing are the people that we push to the fringes of society. 
but rather those who value life and love those who live, that is what is elevated in society. Yes, there are different ways we come up with in society to, to squeeze those out of our minds and to be able to uh, justify different ways to take life, but as a whole, the life that we have is always valued. And for those who we value in life and love most, it becomes even more precious. Life never becomes more precious when each moment that you value in life is spent with someone who is enduring a severe illness, sickness, pain, suffering that comes with our broken bodies, the inevitable fate that faces all of us as human beings from time to time. This drives us to value life all the more. It makes every second precious, every minute precious when you spend with someone who is enduring the hardship of severe illness or sickness or cancer or disease that, that seems to be leading to death. And so as people of faith, we, as Christians, we, we, we cry out to God for help. Help, O oh Lord. Heal as we pray here every Sunday. We pray for people by name. Lord, help. Lord, give grace and peace. Lord, heal. We lay hands on people and meet them in the hospital. I visit people in the hospital and pray for God's healing. I believe he can and he does. And so we cry out and yet we sometimes, I will admit, sometimes it may feel like we get the response that Jesus gave to Mary and Martha. Lord, there is urgency in my voice. Help and heal. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to stay where I'm at for two more days. <laughs> you know, I'll take my time. And I'm like, there's no time now. And yet he seems to almost, almost seem indifferent. And then you'll come to find out he is not. But to us, in our perspective, I know what that feels like. Jesus does not seem to hurry. He does not seem to hurry to go to rescue and to heal in this situation, it seems and so it's this losing of life that he allows Mary and Martha and Lazarus to experience. And he gives comfort to the disciples who are also confused at the situation. He says, look, the light of the world is here. Follow me and you won't stumble. If I wasn't here, you wouldn't know where to go or what to do and you would stumble in the dark. But the light is here. I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will not trip. You will not stumble. Just trust me and I will direct your paths. And he encourages them that. Then in verse 15, he says this curious phrase, is, and Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What? Right? I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, it's, it's one of those phrases where you, maybe you don't know what's happening at the end of the chapter, and you're thinking, what? You know, I am glad that, I, what is going on? Again, Jesus, how can you say something? Don't you know how much this hurts? And then Thomas, almost ironically, at least I read it ironically, other commentators see it differently, but for me, because I have that weird humor, I just see him as Thomas, yes, yeah, Jesus, uh, Lazarus has died, why don't we all go so we can die with him, you know, because that's our fate, and that's where we're headed, we're all going there anyways, Thomas just says what we're all thinking, right, that's what I find Thomas always does, he just says and asks the question that no one else wants to ask, and says what everyone else is thinking anyways. We're all going to die. Everybody wants to stone you and kill you. Why don't we just go? All right. So let's go. Get it over with. But if we go back to verse 4, this powerful verse, 
This verse that Jesus says, sickness doesn't lead to death. This illness doesn't lead to death. How can he say something like that when Lazarus will clearly die? What about that man born blind that they mention in chapter 9? Do you remember that? Whose fault is it that this guy was born blind? His parents or is his fault? What did he do that he gets this, right? We always try to legalistically put it on someone else. It's someone's fault that this has happened. Whose fault? Whose fault? Whose finger can I point? Who didn't have enough faith that this happened, right? Who can I blame shift on that they're enduring this sickness or this trouble? What did I do wrong to get this diagnosis? How is it my fault that I'm going through this right now? We always cast blame on other people or we're very quick to cast blame on ourselves and to shame ourselves into thinking that it's always something that I have done. Lazarus endured sickness and death so that the power of Jesus could shine through the darkness of his death and give testimony to the resurrection power of God. And if we're going to get personal, maybe you're like, we've already been getting personal, Pastor. How about you? What about verse 4 in relationship to your diagnosis and your sickness and your suffering? I would likely say that this, this sickness, the suffering and hardship is, is not your fault. It's not because you don't have enough faith or you didn't do enough things. Most often this situation is this, this chance that we get to constantly try to avoid and escape these things is we end up wasting what God is doing in us. But is it possible that God is trying to work in and through our suffering? As C.S. Lewis says that he makes our pain is a megaphone for, for God's grace. Would, would he allow God's grace and resurrection power to shine through our lives in whatever state that we find ourselves in. Even allowing God's gospel message to shine through our death. Is that possible that what God could be doing? Yet, at the same breath, is it possible that our sickness and our illness doesn't lead to death? Is his healing capable and able to rescue me from 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 the sickness that I'm in? both to rescue me from this situation that I find myself in this present place. Yes, 100%, yes. God is able, he is capable. Do we pray for healing? Absolutely we do and we should. Do you believe in healing? 100% you should. God is capable and able and we 100% believe that he can and he will and he does heal. Yeah, but what if he doesn't? What if God chooses not to in this instance? Can God still reveal his glory and his goodness, his grace and his gospel resurrection power in a healing of miracle power? Yes, but also maybe in our death. Yes, he can. It's the already not yet. The kingdom has come and yet it is guaranteed, yes, through Jesus, the gift of his spirit and the full benefits yet of all of that has not been consummated until his return. We still have broken bodies that get old, that get disease and sickness. And you may receive the healing power of God in this life right presently now, but you will certainly through faith in Jesus receive it in its fullness when he returns. So there is a trust and faith right now, yes, presently, yet also one day, certainly. It's like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of thought process. 
It's the Daniel chapter 3. They're going to be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. They can repent and worship the idol of Nebuchadnezzar or they can be faithful to what they know their God to be. And they say in Daniel 3, 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What faith these men have. What faith. But if not, they say, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is a faith that is present in the kingdom here now and recognition of God's sovereign plan and his eventual consummation of all the kingdom of God in the heaven and earth when they unite one day when he returns. It's a beautiful, beautiful tension of yes, and he is able, but if he doesn't, I can guarantee you we are not going to bow down to your ways. I will stand firm. As Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him in the flesh one day. Job in all that he went through. As Jesus gives that leper in Luke 5, the leper goes to Jesus, he falls on his face and begs him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will and I am, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. God is able and he is willing. I heard Tyler Staten, he's a pastor who shared this illustration, so it's not original with me, but he He shared it, and it hit home with me because I have little kids, and he was sharing a story in relation to this topic that we're speaking about today. He he shared this illustration, and I resonated with it. He says, you know, he has a little boy, and I got a little son who always wants a taste of everything you're cooking, right? (laughs) He, He said they were in, and they were preparing for this big birthday party, and he was making a cake. His wife was in there cooking, and they were all baking this big old feast. They're having all this family over, and this big party was coming, and his son was in there, and he kept trying to beg for a taste of the cake that they were making. And you remember, you've ever, your parents maybe allowed you to lick the batter of the cookies they were making, right? That little bit of a taste of what was to come. It's a wonderful thing. And he talked about how this son just desired so much for this taste. And, and there are times when his son would come in and he gives him a taste. Yes, you may have a, a lick of the cookie batter or the, the cake frosting. But he always reminds them that there's something more to come, something better that is coming. There is a great feast that we're going to enjoy. This cake will be done and finished and we will enjoy it together in this glorious banquet celebration. Sometimes we oblige with a taste. But that healing is, in a sense, this present healing that we experience is a taste of heaven. It's a taste of wholeness, shalom, and peace within the creation, the created order, our bodies, and with God. He gives us a taste. But the healing is a sign of the substance, which is salvation and eternal life. It is the aspect that Lazarus would eventually die again, (laughs) And so if all that he received was a a temporary healing for a few more years on earth to then find nothing in the afterlife, what good is that? Rather, recognizing that this healing is a taste, it is a sign, it is a a sign of the bounty of, of abundant life that God has reserved for his people when he returns this heaven. And so it is good, it is wonderful, and it is something that we desire, and God gives good gifts to his people and to his children whom he loves, and he will dispense healing through the church, through the gifts of healing, and through a variety of prayers of faith of the saints. He will give that 
But if he doesn't, it does not mean that he withholds it. He's reserving that feast for you in eternity. That is our faith that believes. That's why we read earlier the Romans 6 that if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Do you believe this? This is what what he is telling us. Do you believe this? And that's why he moves to this second point, I am the life. And we're going to go through these very quickly because it kind of all condenses at the end. After we've encountered this sense, he says, I am the life. Now that Jesus steps into this situation, it's as if wrongs can be made right again. It's as if there is hope that steps into the situation. Jesus says, I am, this Anastasia, this Anastasis, this is Greek, it's actually the Romanized version of the, where we get the name Anastasia, this is resurrection. And then he says, I am the life, this is Zoe or Zoe, Anastasia and Zoe, this resurrection and the life. Believe in me and you will never die. And the idea is though you die, you go to life. You pass from life to life. Jesus' statements here are the very hope and central belief of the Christian faith. And yet, Jesus does not just dismiss their grief. Notice this. I want to encourage you with this, that Jesus, because I know I'm sensitive to this aspect that many of you are in the middle of grief right even now. I know you. I know what you're going through. And yet this idea is that Jesus does not dismiss their grief and treat them, well, just have some more faith. Why is everybody crying? Why didn't everybody just stand up? Don't you know who I am? Doesn't, he, he doesn't do that. <laughs> he steps right into it. He feels the death with them. He says, I am the life. I am the only one who can do something about the most central question that we all face. What about life or death? And so he steps into that. He grieves with them. Look at this, verse 33, 34, 35. He is deeply moved. His spirit is greatly troubled. when When everyone's heart is crying out, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're the ones closest to Jesus. If anybody, they're the ones who shouldn't have have to go through this. Jesus says this illness doesn't lead to eternal death. Rather, this is a way that God's glory will shine through this tragedy. And then we come to John 11, 35. Jesus wept. What is he crying about? It's almost as if what is he weeping about? There are many things that I think are going through him, but he is coming face to face with the corruption and the effects of sin on this world as he faces a loved one who he loved dearly pass away. The shortest verse in the Bible often to me is the most profound. Jesus looks at the effect of sin and in his holiness and perfection, he is most affected by this unnatural pain here, this sin of death that brings this, this feeling within and he looks around and he sees and he has compassion on people and he cries. I think centrally though, Jesus is crying because he loves. Remember what I said at the beginning, why is death so hard? Why does grief feel so difficult? Because you love and love is central and that God is love. He cries because he cares 
And the beauty of our faith is that God is not aloof and separate from us. He takes on our flesh, but even in that, he takes on our grief and our emotion. And he says, take all of our anxiety, grief, and pain and cast it on him. And he will step into that and care for you. Jesus is the one who is the resurrection and the life, yes. But he is also the one who loves you and cares for you even in the most sensitive times that you find yourself to be in. He is with you in your pain. He is with you in your sorrow. He's with you in your hardship and in your cancer. He is with you in that miscarriage. He is with you in those night terrors and fears. He is with you in that depression, that times of anxiety. As the goodness of God's song says, in darkest nights, he is close like no other. Psalm 23 reminds us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That presence of God dispels all fear because as 1 John 5 reminds us, and 4 is because he is love. For perfect love casts out all fear. We step into this as Jesus feels the death. He takes on the death. And yet he feels that death. He experiences that death with the people. And yet it is not as if someone who is attempting to show compassionate care for someone and yet can do nothing about it. You've all maybe experienced that when someone attempts to provide comfort and yet really can't do anything. I often feel like that at times where I feel completely helpless to offer anything of any words without, find, without sounding trite to someone's pain and compassion or a difficulty that they're going through. He does not just feel the death and do nothing about it. He steps into it and then he provides a way of escape. And look at this. So verse 38 through 44, obviously this is like the culmination of the story where Jesus proves his power to conquer death and bestow life by giving the sign of Lazarus, which is a, a sign that points to his resurrection power for the entire world. And so Jesus deeply moved. Again, the, the, the passage is reminding us of Jesus' emotional travail in this situation. Or I hope you feel it today even as we step into this difficult passage where we feel what Jesus feels. We feel what Mary and Martha are going through. The, the tears are pouring out. People are moaning in the background. There is great pain. Jesus deeply moved. says, take away the stone. And everybody's like, what are you doing? They, they even say, what are you doing? Because he said, don't you know he's going to stink? Okay, been in the grave for four days. What are you doing? Take away the stone. And then he says, don't you know? And then he says, did you not tell you? Like, were you not listening earlier? (laughs) What if I told you that if you believed, you would see? Believe and see. And you will see the glory and the power, this kabod, this weight of God poured out on this place that is just radiating the light of glory and power to the world to be seen Believe and you will see the glory and the power of God. Jesus then lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. He has this personal intimate conversation with the Father and he says, I I pray these things. I know we've talked about this ahead of time, but I'm saying it again to you and I'm saying that in, in conjunction, Lord, because there are people here that I want them to see your glory and your power to rescue them from this same sort of death. And so he prays. And he commands Lazarus 
come out. Lazarus, rise up. <laughs> and again, it's the most extraordinary story and yet the most comical at the same time. Is it not? Can we just have a moment of comical relief, right? Maybe some of you are waiting for that. <gasps> okay, breathe in, breathe out. The comical relief is that he's still wrapped up in everything and he comes out of the grave like a zombie, okay? And he, he, the funny thing is also we don't even know what he says. What is he thinking? I've always thought, like, is Lazarus happy to be back or he is like, what am I doing here, you know? Ah, oh, man, I got to come back here. I was within the presence of God, you know? So it's this storyline that is so almost comically uh, extraordinary and, and startling all at the same time. He comes waltzing out of the grave. It's like he's escaped this escape room, you know? Have you ever been in those escape rooms where you're in this place and you have to, uh, with your team, you have to solve a series of puzzles in order to escape this room? You gotta go over here and solve this puzzle which gives you a key which unlocks this little puzzle which gives you another key to open up and figure out this box and then finally at the end you get the key and you can get out of that place, right? But there's this time that's ticking the whole time. Tick, 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 tick. And in some ways you could say every single one of us is in one of those little escape rooms where time is ticking, right? Right, we, we think of like the... Oh, Peter Pan with the clock that is chasing him, right? Uh, the crocodile which is after him. Time is ticking. We've got to escape. And so we try to do our best to go over here and unlock this puzzle and get over here and do this thing. And Jesus is yelling from outside that escape room saying, the door is open. Come on out. <laughs> do you not know? It's not locked. I've already unlocked the door. Walk out. I've already rolled away the stone. Believe in the words that I say to you. My sheep know my voice and they come out of the sheepfold and they follow me to pastures of abundant life. This is the gospel message found in the person of Jesus Christ that we would never make it out of that escape room on our own. That time would go out and our life would be over but Jesus says this time means nothing for I give you something that has no time. It is eternal and it is eternal life. And I think as we close and we step into the table of communion, we find that this is the very purpose of the entire book of John. This is exactly what we've been talking about, questions of life and death. The person of Jesus answers for you the question of L-I-F-E, life. And if you have that life for John 20, as we've read at the very beginning of this series, and we often refer to it, John 20. John tells you why he wrote this book, compiling the, these stories of Jesus. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the gospel message. Call out to him and you will be answered with a message of eternal life, forgiveness, and grace. Let's close in prayer before we come to the table. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this message of life. A message of life that comes from you. Thank you, God, for providing it for us when we could not provide it for ourselves. Lord, we pray to you, asking you, Lord, for healing, asking you, Lord, for your power of healing to come upon these people and give to us, Lord, what we desperately pray for. We come believing 
with faith. But we come, Lord, trusting you that you are good. And whatever you decide is good, and we trust you with that. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this church and for the communion table that we come before today and the reminder of your gospel-saving resurrection power. We love you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we come to the Lord's table, a final few minutes of today's service where we come around and we join together the bread and the blood of Jesus, the bread of life, and this blood that's been shed so that you may participate in life together today through his Holy Spirit. So if you would join me by please standing to partake in communion, the elders and deacons will come forward and dispense to you the communion elements. And we will participate in a time of silence where we contemplate, we examine what God has taught us this morning, what his truth really is, what the gospel message means for you and for me, and the life that is truly found in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrection and the life.